This is episode one of Cinescope, and today we talk about some biodigital jazz, man. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and returning after last week's successful test episode is Mr. Joe Darnell to talk about one of his favorite films, Tron Legacy. How are you doing, Joe? Hi, doing great, Chad. Thank you for having me back. Looking forward to many more to come. Definitely. We had a great week. There were some really good feedback from different people that I can really appreciate and get behind. You know, here starting off, it's really important every bit of feedback we get to help us explode in a way and get ourselves out there. So to that end, remember that if you want to help us get started, then posting a review and rating us on iTunes and of course sharing it with people who may have similar thoughts or opinions to you, uh, that's always going to be a great way to help us out. And help me out as I get this thing off the ground. And remember, you can check out last week's episode zero talking about Back to the Future. And you also get a little bit more of a background to me and to the show and to the show's title. And of course, you get introduced to Joe for the first time. Yep. Since this is our premiere official first episode, we are just going to jump right in here. Is there anything you want to say about this movie, Joe? We haven't introduced the movie. You want me to start? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So we are reviewing Tron Legacy. And it is one of my favorite films, if not my favorite film. I know I'm being kind of biased. It's not purely based on merit. It's in part just based on my own personal entertainment values and favoritism, which I think all of us carry and bear when we go into the movies. We walk out of a film and know it's uh, critically acclaimed and we just don't care for it. And then you watch something else that... You know, some people like, some people don't, and you just think it's the best, and you can't wait to share it. And that's kind of how I feel about Tron Legacy. I know it has some critical acclaim, but I feel especially fond of this film. I've watched it many times, and I enjoy watching it with people new to the film and helping them to see it from a different perspective, if that means they can get any more appreciation from it. Yeah, and you speak to something really important to me, Joe, is... uh considering beyond the technical or the perfection of the film. We talked about this a little bit last week, but film criticism is so much more than just the technical aspects. It's not something that's qualitative, I I guess is the word. We all have very personal opinions and preferences, and we're all going to approach films differently. And if I like a film that maybe you don't like or vice versa, that's perfectly okay. We're entitled to our opinions and nobody's wrong, you know? Oh, definitely. And that is something that has bugged me. I've I've reviewed a few, uh, I don't want to say a few hundred, but at least a hundred different movies over podcasts and blog posts and the like over the years. And I've had people that were very confrontatious with me about my views, let alone my final rating of a film. And I just wanted to say, well, it's just like your opinion, man. <laughs> just, <laughs> I'm not trying to encroach on your opinion, and hopefully you can appreciate something and from mine just give you some added perspective. And I, I definitely have appreciated a good podcast discussion about a movie, not just for the 
the insights they might provide. There's been a lot of podcasts where the guys know insider information. They know a lot about filmmaking or they just know a lot about film and they can spout off, you know, movie trivia that pertains to the movie that they are reviewing. And that's amazing. I love it when I can uh, hear some people incredibly knowledgeable about the film industry, like my friend Clark. And I, I, there's definitely value there, but I also appreciate the people who just talk about movies in layman terms, uh, just from their own perspective. And they get me to see it from another light because when they share their perspective, I usually can watch the movie again and see it in a different light, which means I get again, more value from the film from a new perspective. That's, that's kind of special to me because usually if you go into a movie time and again with just your own perspective, it, it gets boring really fast. The, it's usually the first couple of viewings that are especially enjoyable and beyond that less so until you get some new fresh perspectives like watching um, something with my children for the first time gives me all that fresh perspective I enjoy and I get to see something again like it were for the first time. And so I really like watching things with my kids. Definitely. And so let's go ahead and go over the stats of this. As Joe mentioned, this is Tron Legacy. It's not a super appreciated film. It does have its acclaim for visuals and whatnot, but was not always as acclaimed for its story. And so that's what we're going to dive in a lot here. It was released December 12th of 2010 and was directed by Joseph Kaczynski, who uh, went on to direct Oblivion, which is another of my favorite films. It was written by Edward Kitsis and Adam Horowitz. The musical score is composed by Daft Punk, the electronic group, with uh, Joseph Chapanese, who also went on to score the Tron Uprising TV show and Kaczynski's Oblivion. And lastly, it does star Jeff Bridges, Garrett Hedlund, Olivia Wilde, Bruce Boxleitner, and Michael Sheen. So let's dive in. What was your first experience with this movie, Joe? It was while it was in theaters, and a friend of mine was a fan of the original film from the 80s. Neither of us were around and watching films and appreciating them when that film came out, but he was my friend Clark, who became a film critic early on, and he asked me if I wanted to go to the movies with him to catch this film. I didn't know that I would like it. I didn't know much about it. I didn't know much about the cast. I certainly didn't know anything about the director. He hadn't done many other things uh, he, as a director. So it was really enjoyable to uh, just be with my friends. So my, our wives joined us. Uh, we went to the IMAX theater. And it, I haven't been to the IMAX maybe twice since. Just because um, this was actually a turning point. This movie. Because this was a time that it was in 3D. And in IMAX, we were expecting a rich experience. You know, uh, back in 2011, there was still a lot of skepticism about 3D, but we hoped that there would be advances um, that particular time and that a film like this one, as high tech and sophisticated as it was, known for its design characteristics and known that there were several scenes filmed with IMAX cameras, to take advantage of that technology and a better picture, that also it would excel with 3D, and it did not. So the downside was that the picture was a little darker because 3D pictures in theaters with glasses on are just tinted a little bit. So already being a film with a lot of dark scenes, uh, not a lot of light, and the fact that the glasses made it darker just, yeah, that was kind of a dampener on the whole experience. 
But besides that, the sound system was amazing. The score in this film is fantastic. Agreed. Everything about the sound engineering is just a playground for the ears. And then on top of that, the IMAX picture was huge and the definition is great. And just every cotton picking detail in this film that can be immense and epic and sophisticated and glorious in its own right is there. And then there was a decent story I enjoyed. And I enjoy a slower film. You know, the, I was thinking about this earlier today. A lot, not a lot of movies are uh, slower paced anymore. Mm -hmm. And I see this across all genres. Um, all the genres are influenced trying to pick up the pace. Our best directors of our time are heavily influenced by this as well, trying to make faster cuts, faster scenes, uh, and be less introspective, give the audience less time to chew on things. And that supports uh, the growing number of people who have shorter attention spans. That's good for them. It's a win for them. And I certainly have enjoyed many movies that are fast paced. But I also enjoy slower films. So I noticed that right off the bat that when I was getting sucked into this movie and its story, that I was able to appreciate and chew on the ideas a lot more than I am in most films now. So in, in the, just that first viewing, I was brought to tears by the finale. And then the music in the, the credits, when they roll, it just impacted me profoundly it's just one of the best tracks of any score i have i love to listen to it all the time yeah it sounds like it had like we had a pretty similar first experience i also saw it in theaters when it first came out and uh like you did mention the 3d wasn't the greatest this was a year after avatar came out so everybody was doing 3d at this point and uh being a darker film, you're right, it just doesn't work as well. Brave had the same problem with Pixar a couple years later. But in spite of that, the visuals are amazing. And the slower pace of this film, while some might find boring, I think it really gives you time to delight in the visuals and to really experience them and let them sort of wash over you while you're not being overly distracted by other aspects of filmmaking. You're just enjoying in the moment exactly everything that's on screen the visuals the music you know everything along those lines it, it's so great that this does move itself a little bit slower but in that first experience the visuals were pretty much the only thing i walked away with and of course i, I did buy the soundtrack at the time or shortly thereafter and uh, enjoyed that quite a bit but my opinion over time really changed once i saw kaczynski's oblivion and that movie asked some very, very interesting questions and was also a visual spectacle. Oh. And after watching that and realizing, you know, this is the same guy that directed that Tron movie. Maybe I should revisit this and look at it from a different light. And so I did and I have. And it's so interesting. First off, um, also in between those two viewings, I saw the original Tron movie. I hadn't seen it before Tron Legacy, but afterwards I did. And um, while the original is unique in its own ways and was technologically advanced for its time for a kid born 10 years after it was made and not enjoying movies until 10 to 15 years after that, it wasn't something that really fit my appetite. But after watching the original Tron, you get to enjoy a lot of throwbacks to the original. In this movie, you get to see 
just subtle things. There's a track on this soundtrack called End of Line, yes. which is something that the main villain says at the end of his statements in the first movie. And the recognizers are just an updated version of the recognizers that we see in the original movie, which are the big archways that Sam is greeted with when he first arrives on the grid. And those are just a couple of examples, but there are so many small little references back to the original film that you can appreciate. But beyond that, on a more deep level regarding story and characters, there is substance here. You just have to look for it a little bit harder than in some films, but that's only because the visuals and the music are so overwhelming, and that's not exactly a bad thing. It reminds me of many older films in that way, epics that were stealing the show because of their advanced film techniques. Think about films like the epics like Ben-Hur and... Um, Maybe the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, thank you. Though they have a lot of over-the-top acting in those days where characters were very expressive and they, they were heavier films in dialogue, they, even then, the pomp and circumstance of the show, the presentation could diminish the value of the plot and character developments and the arc. And when we watch those things now in an older film, we're not dazzled by the brilliance of the film production. It may seem even ordinary or, you know, uh, sort of artificial by today's film standards. And what sticks out to us more so is how the actors behaved then, how they characterized roles. And so that stands out more and we, we notice more of the story and its pace. I feel because my parents raised me on old and new movies, old and new television shows, I had a wider range of appreciation for the various dynamics. I'm not saying I have exhausted all film knowledge or anything like that, mm -hmm. but that I have familiarity with many black and white films. I have familiarity with action films, with musicals, with silent pictures and the, you know independent films international films and because of that kind of diversity when seeing a film like Tron's uh, Tron Legacy I I as a designer also know the tricks they were employing to make a, a beautiful film and right off the bat I got absorbed by the plot and the character development and apparently this is just not an experience most people have Though I thought that the film was rich visually, I really cared about the characters pretty quick. And uh, but I, I but your experience sounds a lot more like most people's that I have talked to. Yes, although I do think I have a, a lot more of a positive outlook on this film than most other people do, especially when you look at the aggregators like Rotten Tomatoes and stuff like that, where. I don't know the percentage off the top of my head. I want to say it's in the fifties, but it's not incredibly well received in that regard. But you know. I love it. There's a lot to love about this film. So uh, to really dive in, let's get started with the story. What parts of the story do you like most? Well, there's obviously a sense of style that I enjoy, the nostalgia of the 80s, the way that they're characterizing Sam's boyhood in the beginning of the film. Uh -huh. uh, I appreciate when they come to the present and then he visits his dad's arcade. I enjoy those moments where they go to the arcade. It reminds me of my childhood and going to arcades. And that's an experience I know most people are never going to have. And uh, I can at least point to this and say, this, kids, is how we played video games. And it was awesome. <laughs> and then you get into the, the Tron universe, and you're wondering the whole time, 
how does this have anything to do with Tron? <laughs> right. But it works out in the end that it's not about Tron, but I, I think of this as the father-son Flynn story. Oh, definitely. This is definitely a father-son movie at its core. I think where it really sunk into me how this film was special, the first scene that really gripped me was that when they revealed uh, Jeff Bridges as the older man that he is at the time that they've made the film, where in the digital universe, his son comes to him, Sam, and meets Kevin, older Kevin, real, real Kevin in the digital space. Mm-hmm. And it's just moving. I know a lot of people, you know, probably didn't get it, didn't, you know, didn't cap- they didn't capture the emotions for them. But when father and son see each other for the first time after more than 20 years, Jeff Bridges is able to sell it very powerfully. And there's nothing quite like it because you think about the, uh, the relationships we have in our world. Yeah, you might get estranged with family. Uh, you might live on the other side of the country from your family. You may not talk to them very much when you get back together again. It's great to see them. It feels odd. It feels strange. You have a you know well up of emotions that come from nowhere, and you don't know how to deal with them. But this is different. <laughs> oh, for sure. Not not only is this father and son that haven't seen each other in more than twenty years, but this is the first time another human has entered the digital space. And for the sake of story, I totally buy into this idea. I enjoy and relish the idea of living in VR <laughs> and and the idea that this man has aged in there against his will and he's been trying to save the world by being a shield between the world and his own creation out to get them all. And if that means he has to sacrifice his entire life to keep the programs trapped that turn out to be the enemies then he will do that. And then in walks his son. And that changes everything because he knows his son is flesh and blood. He knows what a big deal it is that this other human being is in his digital landscape. And he's the only other human being that has ever been in this this space. Just him, just father and son. I mean, there's so many ways in which that is just epic. It's basically like knowing... You traveled into another dimension. It doesn't matter what dimension. It's epic just to think that you went into another dimension. And then 25 years later, unbeknownst to you, your son comes to the same dimension somehow. And no one else has ever done that. Y'all are the only pioneers in all of time. Right. I mean, that's that's really cool. It is really cool. <laughs> and overwhelms me. And it provides one of the most powerful emotional moments of the movie is that reuniting in his little hideaway base. Sam doesn't know what he's walking into. Cora doesn't really know what she's doing by reuniting these people. And when Jeff turns around, oh, we, we never have visitors. We never have visitors. He turns around and he sees his son. And the first thing he says is, Sam, after all this time, after all he's been through, after all he's experienced and had to suffer through, the very first thing that comes out of his mouth is Sam, his son's name. And it's it's been 20 years and he hasn't missed a beat. And as the following scene goes by, he remembers little details. He knows exactly how old his son is. He knows how long he's been gone. He knows how long they've been separated. That That's powerful. That's That's something that I don't think a lot of people give this movie credit for is that, wow, this is a heavy emotional weight right here. 
and and from there it has a lot to do with the effects the action the visual trappings but then i don't think that the director or the script ever lost sight of the heart and soul of the story and you can see that coming through unexpectedly i think for an audience that is not counting on it not aware of it you may feel like the film is disjointed when you hear something like the bad guy getting very emotional clue gets very emotional and distraught uh, one great example is when he just has he just like loses it when he has finally got into kevin's secret house home home there on the grid right and he's thinking back to when he was created and how you know things went down and he is overwhelmed by such emotion he just like crashes everything off the table and yells and all of his uh, cohorts look at him like, what the heck is going on? <laughs> Why is the boss flipping out? And he just <laughs>, laughs at the end of his little explosion because like, he doesn't even know how to handle these feelings. But that's always there. That's always undergirding the film. And it's pretty cool. It's not as sophisticated in humor and expression as a Marvel action film, but it's still expressive in an introverted sort of way. Now, for me, the the main story aspects, I, I have two written down. The main story aspects that stick out to me are first, just the concept of it all. The idea of a world that's full of nothing but creation and possibility. And th that just blows my mind. I mean, basically the concept of the grid is concept, you know? Yeah. It's this idea that everything and anything is possible and even from there it's not entirely what you create it's what results from your creation the the isos are the example of that where they're just a sort of happy accident on the side after what you planned produce something else yes yeah and so i think that's fascinating is just the, the concept of concept like wow that's that's on another level it is it is very interesting and it can get lost in the weeds of the film Yes. The film itself, it feels very conceptual, like you said. And sometimes things are not really fulfilled. But in and of itself, it, it reminds me of real life. If these kinds of scenarios played out in the real world as fantastic as they are, which is just not realistic. But if they could, there would be a lot of incomplete parts, a lot of things that don't add up. And there are whole subplots, like the one concerning a character named Zeus, that feel like they came out of left field and they go nowhere and they're disappointing and disillusioning and a lot of people have frustrations with everything to do with that character as it concerns the progression of the story but it also feels a little bit more true to life to me it shakes things up it is like the equivalent of having a bad day and feeling like it just came out of left field that's what it was like for these characters shakes things up but to no end and I don't know, maybe I'm reading into things. Yeah, but I think we all read into things into our favorite films. And uh, I certainly won't stop because you tell me I'm reading into things. Right. Well, I mean, to that point, we all have our own individual stories and uh, we have a point A and we have an eventual point B and whatever happens in between doesn't necessarily count as a means to an end. It's just sometimes this happens, sometimes this happens. Now this particular event will lead towards our point B, but this particular event may not. And that's, you're right, that's true to life. And that's not always what you want in a film, but I think it's it's done well here because Zeus is an enjoyable character. 
Now, my other story point that I wanted to mention is the, the sort of touches of Frankenstein, your creation turning against you, but uh, the idea of not being afraid of your creation or not being afraid of the possibilities of creation. Because as I mentioned a minute ago, so much good can come from creation. So much good can come from you building onto your ideas and putting that out into the world. And it's largely behind intent where Flynn's character is built on creation for the sake of the betterment of humankind, whereas Clue's sense of creation is creating perfection, which is, as we find out in this film, unattainable as far as our creation goes. And also the idea that we are our creations. And again, that's mirrored from Flynn to Clue, where Clue, coded likeness utility, I believe, or codified likeness utility, mm -hmm. he's the mirror of Flynn. And there's that moment at the end of the film where he says, you don't know that because I didn't know that when I created you. So the idea that our creations are parts of us, that we put our personality, our ideals, and our flaws into our creations, but that doesn't make them inherently bad. It just means that we grow over time. And so as we continue to create, so do our creations. I was going to ask you, what did you think of the characters, which one stood out to you? I know this is something you're planning to get to, but I'm ready to go there. Okay, me too. Let's do it. I have our four main characters written down just because um, I think there's something something to be said about all of them. So the first one I have is Sam. He's He's hopeful. He's confident and dedicated to his father's ideals, even though he hasn't seen him in 20 years. I mean, he makes his yearly visit to his father's company that he's largely been shut out of or doesn't want to be a part of, but he still sticks to his dad's idea, you know, our software should be free to the people or stuff like that. Does that make sense? And mm -hmm. he's also still, he's still the little boy just missing his dad. <laughs> in that first confrontation with Alan Bradley in his little uh, Riverside apartment, it's this realization, come on, Alan, I'm not this little boy anymore. I miss my dad, but he's not out there anymore. But in his face, you can see how much he wants his dad to still be there and how much he wants this to still be a possibility. And Alan even voices that. He says, you know, wouldn't that be something if he was sitting in his office still working, just forgetting about time and losing track of it? And so Sam is a really interesting character in that sense where he is just the son and he is dedicated to his father and to helping his father. And he carries those same ideals. And I think that's true with all of us and our fathers is we, we carry on their legacy, honestly. And that's largely what the film's about. Exactly. You had some thoughts about the others as well. Yes, I did. Um, in the same way, Flynn is just, I mean, he's a father. As I said a minute ago, and as you said, this is a father-son movie. And so in Flynn, we get that loving father, we get the hopeful visionary, uh, we get the wonderful stuck in the 80s dialogue of this guy who went into the computer program in the late 80s and never was introduced to the growing vocabulary of the times. And so he still says stuff like uh, biodigital jazz, man, and <laughs> stuff like that. I mean, he's just a, it, it, he's goofy in that way. And I think our, our dads can often be goofy in that way. Those turns of phrase are, they just still work, especially coming out of Jeff Bridges' mouth. It's, it's funny, you know, last week we talked about Back to the Future and we talked about how it very much is a movie that represents those ideals of the 80s. And it's a very 80s movie in that sense. 
And here we have a character who's straight out of an 80s movie that's sort of in the same sense. Tron is like one of the ultimate 80s movies. And we have so many 80s moments from his dialogue turns of phrases to uh, the first time we enter the arcade and probably the most 80s song of all time, uh, Separate Ways by Journey, starts blasting. And it's just a fun little throwback in that, that way. There's another one that's uh, Sweet Dreams plays after that. And it is also a great tie-in to the story. Both of them I have added to a playlist where they belong inside of the soundtrack. Uh, so I can just hear it all with those two pieces. A while back, uh, I found an album that actually had every last piece of music in the film, and then some that was left out. And I got that copy that uh, had all the Tron Legacy stuff. And I'm not sure why it was never officially released. It looked like the kind of thing that the music studio was planning to release. They went to a great deal of effort to prepare it for the market, but then releasing it was actually canceled. But for whatever reason, people actually made it available. And it wasn't like, it's not like it fell off the back of a truck. I mean, this was actually available to the public. Like, well, we thought we were going to sell this, but we chose not to. Here it is for free. And I found it during that spell when it was available online and I got it. And yeah, it's, it's great. <laughs> but either way, if you get any copy of the Tron Legacy soundtrack, um, strong, I have strong feelings about the soundtrack and it's always great to hear the journey piece added to it. It's in so many epic ways, it really connects with the story. So what characters stick out to you? I have a couple more that I could talk about, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. I agree with you about Sam. And he is sort of like the everyman in that he doesn't have very distinct features, but he has a great deal of emotion that we can relate to as audience members. Um, so we, we can definitely relate to him throughout the film, but he's not got so much personality that we feel different from him. And then it's still nice to see his own progression, how he eventually works things out with his dad in his own unique way. They make compromises and appreciate their different approaches. Of course, I couldn't say enough about Jeff Bridges' performance as Kevin Flynn. Unique that the man got to play the character such a long time ago and with different direction. And it was a different time, the way the computers were thought of at that time. So different. Jeff was in a different place in his career and the kind of performances, the opportunities he had were different than they are now. And what we have is a well-seasoned Jeff now, but he knows the value of the original film for special effects and for storytelling. It had some good plot points mm -hmm. that were very novel for the time and somewhat sophisticated and unexpected for that sci-fi. I, I guess you could call it a sci-fi. Even if you have your issues with the quality of the film and how it's aged, you can still appreciate it's it's good side and what made it special oh definitely and don't get me wrong i i, I really enjoy the original tron movie i, I watched it earlier today I, I can't say that i really enjoy it but i do appreciate <laughs> it well in the same sense i mean it's yeah. not one of my favorite movies of all time but it's something that i could pop in every once in a while and enjoy watching jeff bridges run around in this skin tight light up suit and uh, it, it's just a, a fun movie and how it is so representative of the time and the technological achievements that it represented at the time. And, you know, uh, what's cool about the original Tron, it was actually a large 
inspiration for John Lasseter in creating Pixar. Those animated sequences are largely, they showed Lasseter what you could do with animation. And it really paved the way for what would eventually become one of the most successful movie studios of all time. Yeah, it's funny that Tron Legacy has that relationship to Pixar, certainly. And that's the thing is like some of the best films that have the most influence on film or don't get the credit. (laughs) And this is one of those that that really deserves a lot more credit than it gets. So, so returning to the idea of Jeff Bridges, I really thoroughly enjoy him. That being said, I have a hard time saying that I watch this film for a particular character. I feel like I appreciate the value of how well they mesh together that Kevin Flynn would not have been as interesting without his en- his enemy, Clue. Yes. And Clue wouldn't have been as interesting without Kevin. And even Cora adds a lot to Kevin. And Kevin adds a lot to Cora. In and of themselves, you couldn't make a film that focuses too much on any one of these characters. Mm-hmm. The way that the film works as well as it does is when the characters get to play off of each other and have a lot more depth because of their relationships with each other. So you see how um, something not many people are probably thinking about is that Kevin met Cora when he was in his early 30s. And she was a new living, full-grown woman. For whatever reason, he watched after her. But he never created like an intimate relationship with her. You know, He looked at her more as like, his apprentice and someone he had to take care of right and he had to nurture and so he gave her an education he introduced her to culture he guarded her um and he grew old and cora didn't (laughs) and they've been together for all this time in secret and he's just been an admirable man and she has been his loyal friend Though there's not much that they could do about that. They couldn't acquire new freedom. They couldn't help each other out of the problem they were in. So when Sam enters the scene, Cora does things to help Sam to change the scenario. Going with her gut, it is in all of their best interest. And Kevin wrestles with that. Like he's dealing with a daughter who just doesn't know what she's doing and that he does you know, it's not like he has a, an opportunity to lecture her or anything, not that he should. You, you could debate the merit of his own decision to like not do anything because this is dangerous and Clue will get the upper hand. You can see there's a lot of conflict there. And Kevin makes the point later in the film that uh, perfection is unknowable. So like the perfect plan is unknowable. And he, he feels very adamant that he has the right plan. His son feels adamant that he has the right plan. Cora is somewhere between the two extremes. There's just so many interesting dynamics there. So for me, I appreciate the quality of the relationships that the characters are built on. Right. And you made the point, these aren't like the deepest characters themselves. The depth that comes from these characters is how they interact Deep with scenarios. Not in and of themselves deep characters, deep, but they're the situations that they're put in make force them into very interesting deep choices. Exactly. And what I love about Korra is her 
sort of naivety and innocence and how wondrous she finds everything. My favorite moment with her is, well, there, there are two. The first is when Sam is having to describe sunlight to her and you see this this sort of twinkle in her eye as she's trying to imagine something that's unimaginable unless you've experienced it. And then at the end of the film, we get to see her experiencing it. And the way she appreciates that differently than somebody like you or me would because she's coming from a different place than you and I would. So I think that's really fascinating about her character. And as you mentioned with Clue, he is the embodiment of our creations. He, They do what we tell them to. And he's a very good example of a villain who's doing the wrong things for the right reasons. It's something he believes in. He, he thinks he's doing right. He was told to create the perfect system. And so everything he does is fulfilling his purpose, his vision of the purpose. And um, that's something that a lot of movies do, but don't always do as well. And I think what makes it work so well here is that he is literally the mirror image of Flynn. He's the opposite of our hero. And I think that that really makes that character sort of pop and makes him more understandable as far as his intention goes. And at the same time, there's so much complexity there because it it's it's also Kevin betraying himself. Right. And th- that is what's wild about it, is that Clue is just his younger self, slightly younger self, betraying his 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 present self. <laughs> and that is so unique. And again, it's not like it's not like the film does something really jazzy in a very sensational sort of way to give it added depth, like, um, say, Christopher Nolan's Prestige, where you get with these characters portrayed by Hugh Jackman and uh, Christian Bale in such a profound way, like, oh, these magicians, they're just competing with each other, but they're ready to kill each other. And look at the lengths that they'll go to. You don't get that kind of appreciation from these characters in this film, but if you actually stop to think about what they're going through, if you stop and think about what they are doing and how epic it actually is, it is pretty epic. And so the film does not diminish my appreciation for that observation that how you ever, you know, stop to think about like, how would you deal with your younger self? How would you deal with your older self? You imagine like um, having a conversation with your 12 year old self. Would you tell him? And what would you like him to tell you? It's interesting. The fact that you have changed. A lot of people say, people never change. No, we all do. We change really fast too. And because we now live in the moment, we don't even recognize just how much we've changed. And that's that's where I see this is kind of fun. That, that, that clue is just arguing with his future self. And... uh vice versa. Well, cool. Let's go ahead and move on to the music. And there's so much to say here with the music. So my thing with the music in this movie is that it shines literally at every single moment it's featured in the film. Yes. In many ways, it is the focus of the movie as far, not, not the primary focus. It's not, it's not the only thing you want to walk away from the movie with, but in every scene it features, it's something that they want you to pay attention to. And to that end, it works really, really well in the context. It fits the world so well. I don't know who thought, you know, let's hire those guys who wear the helmets on their electronic albums <laughs> to to write the music for this movie. But whoever did, 
is a genius because this is one of the best soundtracks in this sort of genre to come out in the last decade. In fact, it's probably what introduced me to Daft Punk and I've explored some of their music since and I, I enjoy a lot of their music, but there's nothing that's quite like Tron Legacy in regards to electronic music or in regards to film music. It's it's very unique in that sense. Yeah. I'm just looking up my album info here now. And one of the reasons that I had to think about this is because I, I thoroughly enjoy most tracks from this soundtrack. Me too. But it, but like, say, the original Christopher Reeves Superman film, having an epic opening introduction with titles and credits and John Williams' fanfare, we sort of get a, a miniaturized experience of that in the Tron film where on the opening title graphic you see the title and there's the epic Tron Legacy Overture. And you hear Kevin say, you know, the grid, the digital frontier, <laughs> you know, try to picture blah, blah, blah happening. And when he's going into that, the music is just stirring in my heart and soul. And it starts out quiet and has this distinct synthesized thumping. It's like a crack and I love it. And then it builds to this crescendo and all of a sudden it's all this synthesized stuff and orchestra together. And you're sweeping through these, you know, five story tall letters that say Tron in neon lights through the city of San Francisco streets. And then you're <laughs> sweeping over a body of water to Flynn's house or at least uh, Sam's grandparents' house on the other side of the lake, or the, the other side of the body of water, not lake. But uh, yeah, I know what San Francisco looks like. <laughs> but yeah, at, at that moment, that is breathtaking. And then there's other moments like that. But that certainly is just a, a you know, a, an uplifting moment there in the first minute of the film by the great execution of the soundtrack. I think the opening titles for this movie are perfect. Like literally, they set up the movie so well. You don't have to have seen the original Tron. You don't have to know what this is about. You don't have to have any idea because in the first minute of this movie, you're treated to the opening title. You get to see the title of the film. You get to hear this outstanding musical track by Daft Punk. And you get to hear this really very informative and entertaining narration by Jeff Bridges talking about what the grid is and what his concept for the grid was and what did it look like and as he's talking the visuals are unfolding and you go from seeing lines to seeing outlines of cities and it, it's it expands from there and all of a sudden you're looking out at this full cityscape and it's a really great moment and i think uh definitely one of the more well set up opening sequences of any film one of the things that I think is like, if there's an elephant in the room about this film, it is how expensive this film feels. I mean, like, I know this is maybe jumping off the music subject matter, but... It's okay. How do you feel about it? This film feels incredibly expensive. One of the things I remember learning about the production was that usually a film production has... Uh, various different special effects studios and animators working on the film, different studios collaborating, stuff done in-house, you know, with collaborative teams, and then a director overseeing all the different, you know, bits and bobs that the different people are working on. And then he is casting the vision. They have the conceptual art to, to guide the style he wants to present. 
Well, they did something different with Tron Legacy. As much as they could, they basically put all of the designers and the CGI artists and special effects visual designers in the same space. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they were told like, hey, if you have anything at all to do with the visuals of this film, we want you all to all collaborate and work together so that all your artwork starts to look like it came from just one source. Because this is the idea here is that there is a cohesiveness to everything on the grid because it all came from Kevin's own mind and it was all executed by one mind. That was clue and everything in it feels like it came through one guy and how he would have envisioned everything being done. So everything has to feel like it came from the same artist. And if you think about that and then the the complexity of this film, there are so many layers to this and it's well executed. It's different from other films in that way. And the effects are outrageous. We haven't even talked about the fact that Clue's face isn't even real. It's a digital copy of a younger Jeff Bridges. And it's not perfect, but I've watched this film 50 times and I, I don't even feel like he looks CG anymore. Like at first when told, yeah, that uh, that's not a real face. That's computer generated. I think that I, my brain disinterpreted the you know what you what you're seeing is not real it never is but then over time suspending my disbelief i'm actually kind of impressed i'm like it's not perfect but it's really good yeah i mean i think all of the effort that they put into the visuals of this film definitely paid off where maybe the 3d didn't always work everything else works 100% all the time everything from the design of the grid the effects of the light cycle races and i mean wow the ending sequence when they're flying it's air cycle races i mean that, that's so cool and it all mm-hmm. looks so good and it's definitely consistent throughout the film so i think every bit of money and effort that they put into the effects and the expensive lookingness i guess you could say of this film definitely paid off so back to the music um i just had a couple of specific tracks and moments that I wanted to mention. There was Recognizer, which I think is extremely effective in sort of announcing Sam's arrival to the grid. And it's immediately apparent that he's in somewhere new and somewhere different. And it's not just because of the visuals, because technically at that moment, it looks like he just stepped out of the arcade. It's the same building design, but the music and then all of a sudden the Recognizer itself descending upon him really sets up that you are in a different world and for the rest of this movie you're going to be in this visual uh, landscape that's so well done the only other one that i wanted to mention as far as its use in a scene is flynn lives which is the ending finale track at the bridge right before sam and cora go back to the real world and that's when flynn reabsorbs clue back into himself and it's just this really powerful moment because you get the communication across the bridge between flynn and his son and you get the emotional you get the emotional stuff from Clue as well, who is just trying to fulfill his purpose. He's still continuing to try to fulfill his purpose as he's trying to cross the bridge and enter the gateway with Sam and Quora. And seeing the all of the emotion that's happening in that scene and uh, watching how Sam stares back at his father and Flynn stares back at Sam and how Clue is 
just trying to do what he was made to do and is unable to do that. It's it plus with the music building behind them. It's it's a very well done track and scene that work together. And then I just have a couple of sort of honorable mentions. Uh, End of Line and Derezzed are probably the two tracks on this album that are most like Daft Punk's traditional stuff because they yeah. are played in a club and they are that kind of music and they're yeah. very well done. I think both of those actually have music videos and they're just fun club songs. And at that point in the movie, you actually get to see Daft Punk in the window acting as DJs. So that's a fun little tidbit while watching. They were responsible for their own costumes. If the story is true, they arrived on the set with their own costumes. Oh, that's great. And they were used in the film. And then one more, uh, Solar Sailor, which is just peaceful. And it's a really, it's like the perfect track on this album. That's a mix of traditional orchestration and electronic sounds. And they meld so well together. There are other tracks that do the same thing, but I think it's most apparent here. And it's just a, a pleasant listening moment as they're flying through the sky towards the portal. I couldn't agree more. It also puts you to sleep, but it's just so well done. <laughs> okay, lastly, let's move on to uh, stuff we've already hinted at quite a bit, so this won't take long, but the themes and the the relevance of this movie. What, what do you take away from this movie, Joe? Uh, on a personal note, I have a very um, deep appreciation for the father-son dynamic in the film. Same with me. But also with the aspect of a person and his relationship with what he creates. That, you know, he's here he's trying to foster a great relationship with his son, but he also has his work and his work is consuming him. You know, that's not an original concept in films these days. But the way in which it's executed in the film is really moving to me. Can't be for a lot of people I know. I just relate to it. I don't know why I empathize, sympathize with Kevin as much as I do, but I can't imagine the weight of the world that he is experiencing in his own right. And just uh, film torn to pieces, knowing that his whole life has been dedicated to this thing that turned against him. And so he's going to do everything to go down with his ship. And it's going to take a lifetime of sinking to go down with his ship. And then uh, his son comes along and changes everything. That's really moving to me. The level of maturity, the character faces off at the end, the way in which he bravely faces his own sacrifice, which I wasn't exactly expecting because of the first film. And I appreciate sort of the echoes of uh, Christian allegory, analogy, whatever you want to call it, where there's this uh, sacrifice made for those you love. And in the biblical sense, it happens where the son dies because it's what the father wills for the whole scenario to take place. And here we have the reversal, that the father wants to die so that the son is saved. It's just unique. I appreciate then that his son walking around in the real world after he escapes from the digital one is carrying a dog tag that's essentially an SD card backup copy of his dad around his neck. Mm -hmm. And that's how the film ends. 
I mean, I'm sure that that was promise for a sequel. My mind just raced with the possibilities of what a sequel could look like. I just liked the concepts they had introduced, theme thematically wise, involving sacrificial love. Uh, good ones, very good ones. I, I can't. I know that these have been touched upon in many films, but none of them have taken on this particular interpretation. Yeah, I agree on all counts. The father-son relationship is definitely, I think, my biggest takeaway from this movie. I mean, I'm not a father, but I do have a lot of love for my father. And so from that perspective, I can't imagine uh, being apart from my father for that long, only to have to say goodbye again in such a dramatic way a day later. And also beyond the father-son relationship, I also walk away with the idea that perfection is unattainable in the things we create, but it can be found in the people we love. And for the people we love, sometimes we need to make sacrifices. And those concepts together, wrapped in one, father, son, people we love being perfect for us, and then making sacrifices for those people we love. I think those are the, the biggest takeaways as far as story and theme go for this movie. It also comes through with Cora, with the uh, particular understanding that it's uh, taking oneself out of the equation. Right. And I, I thought that that was well done as well. I really liked how they demonstrated that with her character in her own naive sort of way, but still very useful as a device when it came along. Then Tron ends up doing sort of the same thing himself, not as poetically and not as thought through because he has to move quickly. But when he does make the switch late in the film, his sacrifice is felt. You don't have to see the original movie to understand his sacrifice, but having seen the original movie, Tron plays a much more prominent role. He is the protector of the grid. That's why he was created. He was created by Alan Bradley to protect the grid and to see him finally die essentially fulfilling that purpose is a great moment towards the end of the film uh, and i had uh, his last line yeah actually engraved on my second gen ipad <laughs> i fight for the users that's excellent <laughs> so do you have any brief final thoughts joe if you've already seen this film and you fell asleep during the film and this podcast and we'll hold it against you but I, I still think it's an excellent film. And those that can appreciate it along with me, uh, all the more power to you. I'm very happy for you. If you watch it just because Jeff Bridges is in it, that's not a bad reason either. <laughs> or if you just watch it to enjoy the concert that is the music. Or just get the soundtrack. Maybe you don't have the movie, but you can still listen to the soundtrack while you work at your desk. It's really good for that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm going to echo basically all of that in my final thoughts. And basically, bottom line for me is, it's an underrated film that has substance beneath the spectacle if you look for it. But the spectacle is also really, really good. You don't want to uh, sacrifice one thing for another while you watch. You need to really experience all of it. Look for the substance, but enjoy the spectacle. Enjoy the concept, the execution, the music, and then all the little character moments that all really work together to create a film that wasn't as well appreciated and as well acclaimed as it should have been when it was first released. I'm curious to see if Joseph Kaczynski has any more surprises for us in the future. 
I was looking him up earlier today, and he does have a film scheduled for release next year called Granite Mountain. And I don't really know a whole lot about that, but it does star a couple of recognizable names, such as Taylor Kitsch and Miles Teller and Josh Brolin and Jeff Bridges returning. Mm. And like I said, there's not a whole lot of story details, but that's just something to look forward to after two great cinematic efforts from him so far. I'm disappointed that they're not going to make a Tron Legacy sequel, but given how the money matters work, I understand why they didn't come through on that sequel. They got their schedule full with all the other Marvel Universe films at Disney. They just didn't have any time or budget to make this one, too, on top of everything else. Yeah, that's one of the news items from the past year that disappointed me most was that the planned sequel for this movie was canceled. And it's a, it's a shame. I hope something happens somewhere down the line. I think Garrett Hedlund joked that maybe it'll get made in 30 years. Of course, referencing the fact that it was nearly 30 years between the first two films anyways. But hopefully, eventually, at some point, hopefully not 30 years from now, we will get another Tron movie because both have their own merits and are definitely enjoyable movies. Mm. And uh, with that, we wrap up our discussion on Tron Legacy and our first official episode of Cinescope. Episode zero was sort of a test to gauge reception and to garner feedback. And since all of that was pretty positive on the whole and we got some good words from people, this is definitely something that's going to be continuing. And you can look forward to episode two next week when TJ from last week will actually be coming back to talk about his favorite movie. Just a couple of reminders, contact for the Cinescope podcast at facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast or at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Remember how important it is to rate and review on iTunes. That is such a big help here in our starting episodes to get us discovered by other people. So rate, review, and if you enjoy it, also share. Remember to email feedback and ideas to the Cinescope podcast at gmail.com and also contact me about co-hosting. If you have a movie that you like that you think you could talk about for 45 minutes to an hour, email me because I would love to have you on the show to talk with you. Joe, do you have any plugs or anything you'd like to say to the people out there who'd like to find you? Sure. If, uh, if you want to talk to me about movies or anything else, find me on Twitter. I am JCS Darnell on Twitter, Joe Darnell. And I think that'll do it. If you want to check out my other podcast, it's called Top Brew, and it's about coffee. And yes, I have talked about coffee 69 times for that <laughs> podcast. Each episode, a little bit over half an hour. Your sweet coffee podcast every week. And as I mentioned last week, I've listened to all the episodes of that podcast. It's great if you're interested in coffee in any respect. Definitely give that a listen. To find me personally, you can find me on Twitter at Chadadada, C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. And you can also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. Now, all of these show notes and contact information can be found on our website at thecinescopepodcast.com. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Joe, for joining me again. My pleasure, sir. And we will be back next week with TJ for episode two. Thank you. Thank you.